Radio Chili Effect is sponsored by WallStreetWindow.com and listeners like you. And now, and now the, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media, Chuck O'Chelly. July 31, 2023, allegedly, according to that thing we call a calendar, it is Moon Day, last I checked, and uh, that does mean Monday to most of you, the first broadcast day of the week here at Ocelli.com Radio, and the first Ocelli Effect of the week, so... Welcome to it. Now, of course, you'll be catching this, most of you, via your final slab of choice, your applicable application, your podcatcher du jour. I know that. That's okay. But uh, if you are hearing me just after 8 p.m. Eastern Time on a Monday on the 31st of July, 2023, we're live. Anyhow. Who do I have with me tonight? Well, I meant to have him on last week, but then other uh, circumstances conspired against me doing a live broadcast uh, on last Monday. But the planned uh, visitor, I don't know if I should just call him a guest because he's a semi-regular. He's come uh, many times to the show and given us a valuable, uh, you know, look, a valuable peep through the keyhole, a valuable perspective from a world that I got to tell you is a little unfamiliar to a lot of people. And that is the world of, I don't know, legitimate journalism. We went through a time period where <laughs> there were people, uh, seemed like every, and, and do I mean to insult people here? I, I might. Mr. Lanier is not here to insult people. Oh, I spoiled it. But, but I am sometimes. And I'm going to tell you this. Every fool with a cell phone was calling himself a journalist for a little while. And they all had access to many freely open platforms. And it seemed like anybody who wanted to was calling themselves a journalist. Were they actually doing the work that deserved the title? Were they doing the legitimate thing that even in my basic, uh, you know, middle school and high school classes I learned about? No, they weren't. But they were out there giving you a, a, a bit of a peek, a bit of a perspective, a bit of a look, uh, a, a bit of a glance into different parts of the world, and that was valuable. But were they journalists? Not necessarily. But Albert Lanier is with me, and he is a veteran journalist of, uh, you know, uh, of, of quite many years in written form. Uh, he wrote for some magazines, some newspapers, mainly uh, out of Hawaii, okay, just saying. But he wrote for all kinds of national publications. Uh, he's a freelance guy, so he wasn't always attached to some greater corporate interest that, you know, was guiding him or anything like that. And he always did the journalistic efforts. Bit of an unusual guy, though, in that uh, he still exists. It seems like there's not too many of him out there. There's not too many legitimate journalists, and I love journalists, but I just don't get a chance to bring many of them on the show, except for a couple of my favorites. And, of course, Albert Lanier is one of those guys. Now, he's going to tell you where you can catch his current work because I'm a little confused about that. He had his uh, He had his blog going. He had a YouTube channel going. The YouTube channel was very interesting and informative about journalism as well as other things. Very very interesting about being a writer in general and no being a writer and being a journalist are not necessarily the same thing but if you are a writer you might be a journalist but if you're a journalist you might not be a writer maybe i've got that backwards albert lanero helped me straighten it out because <laughs> i'm not either I, I'm, I'm a guy who talks and i sort of create a journalistic thing with the constant creation of the content with the talk show but i never claim to be a writer albert lanier actually is and he's with me to talk about something that is going on in the world that is affecting some of that media which we analyze on here all the time um 
And, well, I, I, I got to get a sensible take on it because I can't seem to find anybody else who has one uh, that will come on the show and talk to me about it at length. So happy to have Albert Lanier with us, and uh, he's going to tell us what he's here to talk about. But first, before you do that, Mr. Lanier, tell everybody where they can catch up on your current work, the thing you're currently putting out. What is it you're doing right now? Still working on YouTube? Do we have uh, uh, some new announcements, some new project that you're doing? What, what's going on? Well, you know, basically there's my YouTube channel, which I used to do writing-oriented shows on on my YouTube channel. But primarily it's, I guess, it deals with the stuff that I've been interviewed about primarily, which is true crime and film. So there's there are these tiny little series. It's just basically me in my apartment talking about these subjects. So... Uh, the name of my YouTube channel is Writer Albert Lanier. I think that's Writer Albert Lanier 3434, technically, according to YouTube. But it, the name of the channel is Writer Albert Lanier on YouTube. Um, and uh, it's been around for over a year. They're like what I call mini shows. I would call it, you know, like, like canners, you know, something you wouldn't find on um the networks or cable or anything like just on YouTube, you know, right. like tiny little things. Like I said, basically me and my apartment, there's looking into, which is true crime. And then there is, um, let me see, film forum where I talk about film. Because uh, at this point, I'm technically, I define myself as a film analyst. I used to be a film reviewer for com, the film website. Um, and now I did that from about 2002 to 2010. Uh, in, a, in addition to other, you know, writing for Hollywood Weekly, uh, like I said, publications in Hawaii, in California, in Washington, mm-hmm. Hollywood Weekly, The Big Business News, White Magazine, um, Town Business Journal, a number of other publications. Right. Um, so, yeah, primarily I define myself right now technically as a writer. I, re- I did freelance writing from for about 22 years, and I retired in 2017. So I've been retired for about seven six years actually <laughs> six years not quite seven no as problem. a journalist as a freelancer but i'm still a writer and so i'm a film analyst i do i analyze films at times i've analyzed eyes wide shut i've analyzed Mulholland drive and i've analyzed uh, let me see more recently last year was airplane the movie airplane yeah. so i do film analysis um and um when i have the chance i write so um, I'm there's my YouTube site, which is writer Albert Lanier. I think that's writer Albert Lanier 3434, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And I'll put no problem. I'll put uh, links in the show notes. Everybody who listens, if you're catching the podcast, I will put links in the show notes directly so you can click on it and go straight to uh, uh Mr. Lanier's uh, YouTube channel. I'll also include a link to his Medium blog, which I think is still up, which was uh, at medium.com slash at the doctor 50, I believe. Uh, but either right. way, the direct link will be up there. Deleted. I don't write it anymore. I ended it after about four years. Right. You can still read it. There's still some nice, nice articles, nice pieces that are there. But uh, primarily, writer Albert Lanier, that's my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want to contact me, you can reach me on Twitter. Yeah, Twitter. Uh, Critic Inc. Yep, Twitter is uh, at, uh, what is it, at or the Critic, right? X. <laughs> or should I call it X? I don't know. What X, Twitter, whatever, yeah, whatever we're calling it now. It has the X logo on it, but it's still everybody knows it as Twitter. But either way, it's still uh, uh what is it at the critic, right? 
Yeah, at Critic Inc. Critic. At Critic Inc. Uh, that's the Twitter. That's my Twitter channel. Right. And again, there will be direct links to these things in the show notes, so you'll be able to actually just click on them and go and visit. And uh, you can contact Mr. Lanier or check out his work. Those two ways are the easiest, but there's lots of Lanier's work all over the place, other videos, previous shows on this show, uh, and he's also done many interviews on a lot of other radio shows. So it's not like you can't find him online. He's out there, and I'll give you guys links. Anyway, you know, you should have a substack. Just quick suggestion before we get into this. I do. I've only written one article for it. Ah, okay. <laughs> I haven't really done much on Substack. Well, when but you yeah. when you get rolling the Substack, we'll promote that too because I mean you only got the one article. I mean you can find them on Substack. Cool, but when you get it rolling, I think we should uh, do a little promotion for you there, and and we'll do that. Um, anyway, do that. Yeah. Let's get to exactly. it. Let's get to the subject at hand, which does involve most yeah. of the stuff that you just brought up, right? As a film yeah. analyst, as a, a a person who is an observer and a media analyst in general, because that's what I would call you, and that's what I sometimes refer to myself as. Now, you and I might do it different ways, but we definitely take time to analyze the media. Sometimes it's the news media. Sometimes it's entertainment. Uh, that's for sure. I seem to get myself in more trouble with the entertainment media analysis than I do with news analysis, even though... Yeah, my news analysis is a little harder, a little nastier sometimes. Uh, I'm a little more, you know, uh, rough. I mean, I ignore a lot of entertainment because it's just bad. Right, but <laughs> you state that your entertainment media gets you into more trouble than the news media analysis. Why is that? Yeah, be- people react to it more personally. It's like they've gotten numb to, you know, hey, I don't like your, your favorite news channel. They don't mind that. You know, that's typical now. That's so, yeah, so what? Yawn. Uh, I don't like your broadcaster. I don't like this guy who's doing a bad job because he calls himself a journalist and he knows nothing about what he's reading because he's a talking head on TV. Nobody cares about any of that anymore. Uh, but if I offend something that, you know, somebody's a fan of, uh, like, you know, recently I said, I- I'm not going to go see the new Indiana Jones movie on another show. Throw MB5, away. Dial of Destiny. Go ahead. Yeah, because I don't care. It, it sounds terrible to me. I, I, I you know, and, and I like Indiana Jones. I saw those movies as a kid uh, in the theater. I like the original one. Uh, the second one was the the, the uh, uh, Temple of Doom. And then even the third one, I think, was the uh, Crystal Skulls. And then they brought Sean Connery uh, into it. That was the fourth one. Crystal Skull was the fourth. Third one was the... Uh, Sean Connery? Was that the one with the, the Sean Connery? In the last crusade, I think. Mm. Indiana Jones, the last crusade. Okay, a little mixed up on it. I'm not a huge fan, but they were good. Yeah. But when I heard the synopsis and I've heard other people talk about this, I have no desire to see this Dial of Destiny. It sounds right. really silly. It sounds really badly done. And sounds like yet another cash grab from an industry that's constantly regurgitating and rebooting uh, old intellectual properties and trying to refit. Oh, well, this worked before. Let's not do anything original. Boof. And they just, you know, uh, uh, spit one of these things out because they know that a lot of people are going to go based on the reputation of the uh, intellectual property, the, the the jumping off point of the damn thing. The, I mean, a lot of this Star Wars content, I'm very sure, is not as good as, you know, the original writing. Some of it might be. But, I mean, they're putting it out there because they know that it's going to sell. It's a matter mm-hmm. of they're creating things that are going to sell and not really going after some well, – New artistic vision or storytelling. That's interesting to me because I I didn't expect to bring this up, but this is something that I've noticed. I've more recently 
kind of looked at because again I was uh, I'm I'm somebody who used to review I used to cover film festivals for a film website called Ain't It Cool News. Okay. Rather infamous site. And I so I used to cover film festivals here locally in Hawaii for them and, and write write up reviews of films and do coverage. Mm-hmm. And um so I it's interesting to me having been around film festivals and film to an extent uh, and I have to admit also, after after I did festivals so far, uh, I've done some acting just so that I get that out of the way since I'm talking about the SAG strike. Oh, so do, I have been an actor. Do you I, have, I, I was an actor for about 10 years. Do you have some IMDb uh, entries? Are you on IMDb at all? Um, they may have a page. It has nothing to do with me. Oh, but okay. there may be a page. There may be a page. <laughs> I hear there is one. Like, I... Which is a surprise to me because I'm like, I don't have a page. I didn't create one. I didn't do anything. So I don't know. <laughs> IMDb, I don't know. Explain yourself, IMDb. I don't know. Maybe that's something they do. But, yeah, I was I was a non-union actor for about 10 years. Mm. So just so that that's out there in discussing this. Because you know, I don't want anyone to come up and say, well, uh, you're talking about the strike because you're an actor. You're biased and you're this. Yes, I was an actor, uh, a non-union actor here in Hawaii for a number of years. Cool. I'm not a member of SAG-AFTRA, so I'm not a member of the union. Well, I've been paid as an extra on a couple of films, but uh, have Mm -hmm. not appeared on the screen. I ended up on the cutting room floor and way in the background only, so I'm not recognizable and don't deserve a page. I go over to IMDb just now, and uh, there is an Albert Lanier that has entered here uh, for being known as being in The Cleaner and The Dead Man. Is that you? Film I never, yeah. That that's a film, to my knowledge, I never did, which is odd. <laughs> okay. I never, I auditioned for it. I never did. I never, I never got in front of the cameras to do any work on the film. Ah. So why am I got a credit for a film I didn't do? It says that you were, mother. yeah. It says that you were Dijan, okay, uh, in that movie. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, see, that's interesting to me because, oh, this is going in the directions I didn't expect. Uh, yeah, I never did the film. I, I did audition for it. Uh, well, perhaps you're... I never saw the cameras and didn't do location work, nothing. Well, may, maybe you're on a DVD extra. You know, sometimes they show auditions on a DVD extra, and they did that, and whatever they paid you uh-huh. to... Uh-huh. Yeah, but why, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you got a point. I haven't seen the movie. No, no problem. Hey, look, I was just throwing it at you. Uh, this is this is news. This is interesting. I, I this is news to me. I never did the movie. I'm sorry, folks. I didn't do the movie. No, no problem. But I did want to yeah. put that out in discussing the strike. Yeah. And look, no problem. It, it gives context, and I want to discuss this strike because this is, and where I started with it about the intellectual properties and this uh, lack of originality is going to play a role here because what are the most recent things that, of course, the headline news is discussing regarding this? Well, you know, they're concerned about uh, chat GPT and these type of uh, AI programs might take over uh, some of the writing duties because apparently you can enter a few things into one of these uh, uh, chat programs, and they can generate a whole script for you if you ask them to, um, which, 
kind of makes it seem like for some of the cookie cutter crap that is released, right? I mean, we were looking at a, a company like Netflix. Literally, they had at one point 130 some odd uh, productions in, you know, actually in production, right? And, mm-hmm. and and they were doing it very, very cheaply. And the the concept, of course, being if we come up with a hundred things and start production on them, one of them might turn into a phenomena like Squid Game, uh, and and that seemed to be one of the business models out there. Now I don't know if you know studios have gone to this or not. And but Squid Game was a huge hit. It was a huge hit, That's but an enormous hit. Yeah. And I've seen Squid Game, an yes. enormous hit. Actually, quite a good show. It, uh, very enormous. Yes, enormous. But, but it was it was enormous as a hit. It was a worldwide phenomena, but it was rare. There was a lot of Netflix stuff that was created that really was kind of a dud, not so big. I mean, Black Mirror has been a successful franchise. Few others uh, out of there, but they literally had over a hundred things uh, in production around the time that uh, the, the first Squid Game was being created, and now they've created an inter- interactive thing with it. Uh, and of course, they're going to capitalize on it, and you, you know that they're trying to figure out a way to come up with another season or another launch of it because that's what they'll do. They'll go back to that well. But back to this thing about the GPT. We even saw a South Park episode in the past year that turned around and made jokes about it and references about it, and then they literally allowed ChatGPT to write the ending to the episode, okay? And they put that out there, and I found that ironic. Of course, that's, you know, uh, the, the, the two guys that do that show, they're always doing stuff like that. That's fascinating, but on a very serious level, there are writers, the Writers Guild, and, you know, have, have also gotten in, and the Actors Guild are in on this thing because AI is something that could make a lot of their jobs no longer necessary. Uh, James Earl Jones signed up voluntarily to allow them to sort of, uh, you know, cryogenically come up with a uh, uh, an AI version of Darth Vader so that we'll have a Darth Vader voice 100 years from now if we need it. Right. For a Star Wars property that appears to be going on and on and on. Uh, that's a voluntary thing from an actor. But what about the idea that actors could be generated through AI only being inspired by real people? What about the scripts now being generated by artificial intelligence uh, as opposed to real people? Uh, there is that part of this equation and also the unfair profit sharing that's gone on. Uh, I saw an article that said that, you know, if you take uh, from the top 10 studio heads, their massive salaries, if you took like, you know, something like 1% from the top 10, you could satisfy the uh, demands of the entire writer's, uh, uh, you know, union. No problem. You you could turn around and with another 1% satisfy all the demands of the actor's union very easily uh, but because there is such an imbalance in profit sharing. Now, that's the story of life anymore, the imbalance between the haves and the have-nots and the people that are actually the owners of things and so on and so forth. But it's very interesting that this is playing out in the make-believe world of Hollywood where there is a very real business going on. So all of these elements come together and now i turn to you for an analysis from a guy who is familiar with this stuff and apparently might have might have maybe acted somewhere around a movie and got a credit uh but you know forget the credit how about people trying to make a living how about people trying to get paid how about you know what is going on here so i turn it over to you again it seems to be an undercovered story 
except for the bullet points and the the detail that I gave, which is, oh, they're very worried, both the actors and the writers, are very worried that artificial intelligence might replace them. And obviously, all you got to do then is pay a guy to run the computer and, uh, you know, a 100 jobs can be done instead of paying 100 people, uh, given the way that most business, especially the entertainment business, and by the way, this will count for musicians too. Musicians are worried about this. Anybody who generates an entertainment product, if they can be replaced by a technology, uh, you know, here we go. Here are the worries. And it didn't get rid of all the special effects people because special effects still require nuance and artistry and things like that. But how about actors? How about writers? Could we see a, a, a day where there are hardly any actors? Maybe there isn't such a wide world of actors or writers that are generating the entertainment out there that does still, you know, create tons and tons of content all over the planet. Despite the fact that there's many independent creators out there, the main corporate, the big time of it all, what kind of effect is that having on it? I get that that's an important point, but you probably have some other stuff to go over and maybe speak to this as well. So I turn it to you. Well, certainly AI, artificial intelligence, is a part of the strike. And at least for the actors, like the Writers Guild of America has been on strike since May. So they've been out, they've been out for more than a couple of months. And, of course, the actors... Uh, Guild of America, even though they gave uh, the negotiation period ran out, I believe, uh, they ran out, ran out, and they gave uh, an additional well, 12 days or so, I think, it was certainly over 10, but they gave an additional amount of time to go over their proposals, uh, which of course would address artificial intelligence and limiting it because for actors, primarily for not so much actors, but for uh, what they call background players. You just mentioned you were a background player on a couple of projects. What they want to do is to use the ability for technology of their computers, of computers, artificial intelligence, to scan a background player, and you pay them basically a day rate or a basic rate. And then you hire them once, and once they're scanned, of course, you can use their likeness. So they will not retain ownership over their, essentially, their, their, the ultimate intellectual property, which is themselves, mm -hmm. which is not just intellectual, but it's also physical property and visual property, <laughs> you could argue. Right. Uh, but they, the studios want to, and other production companies want, and other production outfits, want to be able to scan in background players especially, uh, have their likenesses stored, visual likenesses stored. So all they have to do is pay them once, and they can use it over and over and over again for background. And they don't have to hire, they won't have to hire as many extras. Right. Now, when you look at the proposal for the Screen Actors Guild, my understanding is that it was about $420 million. Now, they're not only addressing artificial intelligence and its threat not only to background players, but also to the major players, which are actors, mm -hmm. uh, and the lack of control over their essence. They're basically their visual or intellectual. They're, they're uh, what I would call visual problems. 
not just intellectual property, but visual property. Right. Their essence. But also um, the financial stakes in it. They want to be able to raise the amount of money that people can make. What's occurred is the growth of streaming services like Netflix, like Hulu. Uh, and the studios themselves have moved, in, have moved into streaming. What's happened is that uh, previously uh, there have been other strikes, of course. Right. In 1960, there was a joint strike. This is such a huge strike because both the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild and really SAG-AFTRA, which is Screen Actors Guild and American Federation of Television uh, Television Radio Artists, I believe, uh, which is a sort of melded union. Um, they merged yeah. several years, a few years ago. That kind of joint Writers Guild and Actors Guild strike occurred in 1960. So it's been... It hasn't occurred since 1960. In 1960, what you got as a result of that strike was residuals, uh, the founding of residuals for, I believe, writers and actors. Um, I believe it was a pension fund and I think maybe medical insurance. So a lot of things came out of that 1960 strike. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question about that, because the way that I see it is this. Uh, We have had an evolution, right? Every time a technology of some type emerges that allows the controlling company to monetize somebody's work as an actor, their likeness and their being, their voice, all of it, uh, every time they have that ability and a new technology emerges, there are new challenges. If, for instance, in the 60s, the big problem was, well, now we're taking these things and we're reselling the show, right? So you got paid for it to run on CBS, but now we've sold the show again and you're not getting any money for it. There, there, there are many famous stories about that, right? How many times did they run stuff like, you know, the Little Rascals on television stations where advertising revenue was raised but the actors the writers the originators of the show whatever were not getting paid for that right and it was just an afterthought so streaming which might be uh, considered a newer technology a newer way of distribution uh is yet again another case where they're either not being paid or they're being well underpaid depending on the circumstance uh for their likeness their work being continued being used again uh cable television was one of those instances where they complained because they got paid for a movie right and ran in the theater and maybe they had a deal about dvd sales or way back uh, videotape sales and stuff like that but then it starts being run on hbo and people are paying for hbo so that they can watch these movies collectively etc etc so there's always been a consideration about the aftermarket so to speak distribution and every time this comes up they push back and the people that control the financial levers always you know have a bit of resistance and something like this comes up so it seems to me like this is part of the natural evolution and let's just say that there are plenty of dead people still on tv right uh for many years i mean we're we're already listening to audiences that were canned audiences right uh you know in, in the 1970s where they would play back tracks of people laughing and stuff like that that were recorded like before television was even a thing in some cases you had recorded audiences that have been dead now for 20 
20 years uh, laughing and applauding at a joke being performed, right? Stuff like that. I mean, you, you, you of course, have the uh, the infamous Will, okay, which is in everything. <laughs> a, a nod from the special effects people all the time. You can hear the Wilhelm scream and everything from a Doritos commercial to Star Wars to uh, every children's movie ever, pretty much. Okay, the Wilhelm scream. These things get you know, memorialized and then recreated, reintroduced, remixed into something else. And then what is the consideration of the originator, the person who first, you know, who even knows who the guy was? I mean, there is history to it. You can study it. Who was the guy who actually uh, made the first Wilhelm scream and all that? Uh, you, you can go back and, and take a look at the canned audiences that I brought up. That's a television consideration. But all these things do play a role because money continues to be made off of the performances, off of the work of other people long after, in some cases, they're dead, long after they're they're no longer part of the equation, and long after they were getting paid for it anymore. So isn't that the, the, the heart of this issue? Not really the, uh, the, the AI situation, although it is part of the equation, but isn't that really the heart of the issue is you're going to keep taking our work and keep reselling it don't we deserve a share of that? Isn't that really kind of the core of it? Well, I would say what you have are epic-changing aspects of the industry. There are several things going on. First of all, during during the summer, the studios have had this summer a number of losses. Mm-hmm. The film there have been films that have flopped. Indiana Jones Five: The Dial of Destiny, for example, is underperformed. Um, you've had the flash from Warner Brothers. That's been a massive flop. You've had some films that have underperformed this summer. You also have to add on top of that the changes that have occurred. So when we look at, so you're having issues occur financially with Hollywood right now. Mm-hmm. But there, there are massive financial issues that are occurring. One of those issues is streaming because the, the, the studios have implemented their own streaming platform. So it's not just Netflix or Blue or, 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 or independent streamers. It's also streamers that are basically studio, studio backed and created streamers. Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, um, I think Max, what used to be HBO Max and now Max. Right. Um, I think, I think even there's MGM Plus, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. These, Streaming entities for the studios are losing money. While there is millions of dollars that can be made from them, they're losing millions of dollars. One figure that I saw was in 2022, at least $800 million was lost. Wow. So they're losing millions of dollars from streaming. Mm -hmm. They're also, this summer, losing, some of these studios are losing millions of dollars on movies. Some of these movies are, are underperforming or outright tanking. So that's why, for example, when you look at, and I never thought this would be the case, that's why there was a great deal of hype over a biopic of Robert Oppenheimer mm-hmm. and a movie about Barbie. <laughs> Both those movies got a lot of hype. Why? Because the studio's have had underperforming to outright flops. Now, they've had successful movies this summer, mm-hmm. but they've had out, underperforming, big underperforming films. Right. I hate to pick on Indiana Jones and a lot of people. In fact, I'll say this. This is a side note. 
One of the things I notice about YouTube is you have a number of these film channels, pop culture and, and other types of TV channels. A lot of these, from what I've just sort of paid attention to recently, I didn't see a lot of these types of channels before mm-hmm. or, or you know, look at them or, or have anything, you know, or they didn't come in my feed. What I notice is what you're getting is a lot of this right-wing political or conservative ideology. Mm-hmm. That is sort of trying to infiltrate the fan world, the TV fan world, the movie fan world. And that's why, for example, you had backlash over the Cleopatra miniseries. Right. I think that was Netflix. Why you had net backlash over the Little Mermaid movie that came out this year for Disney mm-hmm. uh, because of the actress that was in it. Um, both of those racial issues for the for racial issues for those haters of the film you also have uh, a lot of kind of gender war type of issues where there's a resentment of quote-unquote strong female characters they don't like female superheroes they don't like female warriors which you're seeing more and more of at the movies these days so you're seeing a lot of resentment. And part of that resentment fueled over in a movie like Indiana Jones 5, which got hammered by a lot of these YouTube channels. Mm -hmm. There was like an unending chorus of negativity regards to that film. So there was a lot of negative, you know, traffic about Indy 5. And you have to, and I would say people need to start examining what's going on with the online aspect of it. I see that as somebody who used to write for a website. Yeah. But moving on to, to the strike itself. Right. What you have to understand is the studios are hemorrhaging money right now mm-hmm. through their film. They've been hemorrhaging money with the streaming service. Like I said, at least $800 million. And what's happened to the average actor is, yes, what the issues that SAG has to deal with are, I would say the biggest ones are dual. They're financial but they're also you could but they're also technological. Mm-hmm. We've already looked at AI. Mm-hmm. But you have to look at the financial side. What streaming has done, the imp with the with with uh with companies like Amazon and Apple Plus who are also streamers, but they're also tech companies. Mm-hmm. They're producing content, right? For their channels. Right. What you're seeing is that the streaming services which have regular network and cable TV on their on their services, licensed on their channels. What they're doing, as I mentioned before, 1960 strike, you had residuals. Residuals for writers, residuals for actors. So what's happened is residuals have been depleted because of, largely because of streaming. What's changed is, uh, as uh, uh, Fran Drescher, who people may recognize from being the star of The Nanny years ago, Who's President Sag noted, the entire, quote, the entire business model has been changed by streaming digital AI, right? So let's look at streaming. The L.A. Times had an article (laughs) where they looked at just a regular working actor, a guy called Eric Edelstein. Now, he had a tiny role in a movie called Jurassic World. I think it came out in 2015. His residuals, he had a tiny little part. I guess that's a small little speaking part. Mm-hmm. Um, his residuals from cable, meaning the money he would get when it airs on any kind of platform, 
cable, network, streaming, what have you. The cable residuals amounted to, I believe this is in one year, $1,400. Not bad. The streaming residuals, this was all over the same time period, or same basic time, $40. Right. So when you look, if you want to get an economic, and I, I cite that because it's an excellent approximation, it's an excellent economic paradigm, at least mini paradigm, to see what the actors with the Screen Actors Guild or SAG After Strike are fighting. What they've seen is a 20th century economic contract, or I would say a 20th century contract being foisted on them in the 21st century. In other words, what's changed is the business model and the model of financial distribution of residuals has changed. The money isn't there for actors with streaming because streaming, it changes. First of all, with the networks and cable, you could base it off the Nielsen ratings. You could base it on, you have an idea of the advertising dollars. So you have an idea of what, what's going on. But with streaming, the services themselves, you have downloads and you have subscribers. It's a subscriber model. It's not an advertising model, although you could have advertising there. But it's a, it's a subscriber model, and it's downloads to an extent. But the information is proprietary. Right. So yeah, that makes it harder in terms of residuals. So not only are actors and also writers themselves, that's an issue for the writers as well. For the writers, they're also looking at erosion of, many, of uh, writing rooms. They want to get rid of writing rooms. And for the writers, they basically want to turn them into freelance writers. They want to turn them to gig workers. Right. This is what uh, they've complained about. Now, I'm somebody who was a freelance writer myself. I did that for 22 years. Love being a freelancer. But I don't think that's appropriate for the writer, for TV and film writers. I don't, I don't think that's going to work out for them very well because there's more money at stake. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it, and it's really strange. But when you look at SAG itself, the SAG after strike, I just gave you a snapshot of the residuals aspect. It's harder and harder for the actors. These are not multimillionaires, most of them. Um, another aspect that I would want to cite is in order to get medical insurance under SAG-AFTRA, you have to make it at least about $26,000 from acting gigs, whatever you can make, right? 85% of the membership of SAG, and SAG has a, what, 160000 member base that's our member uh, membership their membership is about 160 over 160,000 mm-hmm. so out of over 160,000 people 85% of those who are members of SAG-AFTRA haven't made and don't make $26,000 in order to uh in order to obtain health insurance right in order to get insurance that is a huge deal and again they're not going to get this $26,000 if they end up getting residuals of the level that I mentioned with this actor, Eric Edelstein. If you're getting residuals from a movie that you were in or a TV show that you're in that are amounting to 40 bucks, ultimately, you're not going to reach that $26,000 level, which is actually a rather modest level. That's considered, right. I mean, if you were to say that as a salary, that's a, that's a minor salary. 
And there's also the attitude of the studios. Now, I mentioned, now we're looking at SAG-AFTRA. They have to deal with the AMPTP, which is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. This includes Warner, Warner Brothers, Paramount, or I should say Warner Discovery, mm-hmm. um, NBC Universal, Paramount CBS, <laughs> to say the formal names, Disney, um, Sony Columbia, as well as Apple and, and Amazon and, you know, Netflix and other companies, right? They're all a part of that. Yeah, Fox, Disney. And, but they, yeah. and these are people, you mentioned salaries before. The, the big salary that's often touted in the media is someone like David Saslov of um, Warner Discovery, who, according to one CNBC online article, made something like $498 million in five years. If you look at the proposals, the proposal that SAG had put forward in regards to residuals and, and AI and, and on the financial aspect, from what I understand, that amounts to about $420 million. Mm-hmm. So that's what you're, that they're looking at. Now, someone like Bob Iger, for example, is one of those CEOs, uh, he heads Disney. He's one of those, uh, the PR aspect of this has not been very good. I'll tell you what works in terms of PR, or at least from what I've seen. The cast of Oppenheimer, Matt Damon, uh, Chillian Murphy, um, um, you know, Emily Blunt, uh, and a number of other people. When they were in London, I think at a premiere of the, of the movie, when the word came down that there was a strike, they left the premiere. Because one of the aspects of the strike in terms of the impact is that actors can't promote projects. Right. So if you have movies coming out, they can't promote it. Not only can they not promote it on TV and I guess online as well, they can't promote it. They can't go to film festivals because you got film festivals going on. They can't do it there. So there's a lot of things that can't be done besides work. Obviously, the SAG-AFTRA strike plus the, the ongoing writer skills strike, which happened in May or has happened since May has shut Hollywood down. Right. So you have a lot of movies and TV shows that are the production is down. I hear the the sequel to Gladiator, Gladiator Two. That's there's a Deadpool Three, Mortal Kombat Two, Venom Three. I you know I don't watch. Uh, you know I have a, I, I admit I don't watch as many movies in the theaters as I used to. Right. <laughs> um, but. It seems like a lot of these sequels aren't going to see the light of day thus far, at least in terms of production, as long as the strike is going on. A lot of sequels. Well, let me let me and throw you, a couple of things yeah. into this, because these are necessary aspects in my mind. First of all, streaming, because of the proprietary nature of it, and it doesn't matter what you're streaming, um, is, a, is a strange world. Because even as an independent podcaster, right, I have difficulty proving the amount of you know viewers listeners i have okay um people ask this question all the time especially because i'm trying to monetize things whatever so they want proof now here's the problem the people that control that have proprietary control over the reality of it okay they don't reveal uh and i don't think they're honest with anybody 
about the exact amount of exposure that a lot of things get. Even as an independent podcaster, I find this, that I cannot determine how many radio listeners I have. Uh, I can look at downloads, but the, the downloads are suspect when it comes to the counts that I'm getting back from these different platforms, okay? Um, that is problematic. And when you have somebody that controls something like CBS Paramount or Fox Disney or whatever else, guaranteed it's even more well hidden than, you know, say the podcasting world is, all right? One. Two, there's another interesting aspect here which I find entirely fascinating where, you know, quite frankly, it takes decades of lawsuits, all right? Uh, many times in the music industry, let's go to the music industry just quickly, uh, decades of lawsuits where you, you're looking at record companies, right? They make fortunes off of, you know, some artists, and these artists end up with next to nothing. And you're like, well, they just, you know, they sign stupid contracts. You know, they they don't understand their contracts. Well, they don't they don't sign stupid contracts. Well, they actually that is true. But not just stupid contracts. Yeah, it's they're, not they're, just that. They're they're um, they're evil contracts. But that's the I thing. I don't know any. You talking about music industry? Yeah. they're evil contracts. It is. I won't even say they're 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 not stupid. To sign the contract. No, but but the businesses themselves, okay, but, but whether it's a record company or it's a movie company or whatever, let's be blunt. Those businesses are predatory when it comes to exploitation of artists and creatives of any kind. They always have been. They will pay pennies to a guy making them millions of dollars. This is the entertainment business, okay? That is just the way it is. And it takes decades of lawsuits. And we saw it. You know, guys like Muddy Waters didn't get any money, even though they wrote iconic pieces or, or performed iconic pieces. The people who actually wrote them got next to nothing until they went and took yeah. people to court over and over and over again. And finally, you know, like one estate beats another's estate because these guys don't even live long enough to see the reality of, you know, them getting paid a fair share of what they generated. Uh, Chuck Berry never got a fair share of what he generated. Uh, you know, and, and this is a guy who basically, you know, iconic. Talk about it. I mean, there's nobody who doesn't know, uh, you know, Chuck Berry's stuff. And yet he didn't have a lot of money. He never had a lot of money. Uh, and, it, you know, rep like I said, over and over and over again, these guys have had to go to court for decades in any entertainment business, any entertainment business, whether it's music or films or TV. It takes decades of prying it from the hands of the business controllers that absolutely, you know, take in millions upon millions, possibly billions of dollars all the time. And what do they do? They claim poverty. They say, oh, we've lost money. Like, you're talking about all these massive losses and everything. How many times have we gone and there's been lawsuits? Of course, it's not very widely known. But if you go and you dig into it, a lot of times people have won lawsuits where, you know, they're being told that this thing that they created that they see as a worldwide phenomena, they're getting told, well, in reality, the, the money wasn't really there. You know, we only made a little bit on this. We had to invest a whole lot. And then when they actually right. crack open the books, they discover these people made millions upon millions of dollars more than what they ever said there's usually right. some chicanery in the bookkeeping there's usually a very proprietary protected uh sort of secrecy about this where again 
When you see these these places that can buy buildings, that can buy towns, that can buy, you know, they can do all that, and yet they can't figure out how to pay people to, uh, you know, to do anything because, oh, sorry, we spent so much money making this that we couldn't ever possibly make anything off of it. You start wondering, you know, it's like Netflix who was losing money for about 10 years, okay? How is it that they kept running? With losing money for about 10 years, even their stock price was valued high, and they were reporting losses constantly, tens of millions of dollars, like every quarter. And you're going, well, how do you keep a business running like that? These Hollywood companies that say, oh, we just barely made a profit on this, and oh, most of our movies lose money. And you say to yourself after a little while, look, how do they even sustain being in business? How do they pay some of these executives the money they pay if they are almost never making money of any kind? Television studios did the same thing. You know, oh, well, we ended up breaking even. You know, sorry, there's really not any money left. This has been not so Something that just came out, you know, in, in the 21st century. But I mean, this is almost like a hundred years of this running between the music business, the TV business, and the film industry of crying poverty and stating we don't have any more extra money, even though we continuously sell these things. You know, for the next 50 years, we sell stuff, right? Like Star Trek was, you know, this tightly budgeted thing, and they said they didn't make any money, but then it became one of the most successfully syndicated series in history. Okay, I've been right. looking at Star Trek recently, so this is why I'm talking about it. But, I mean, mm-hmm. and they weren't paying residuals at, at certain points. They paid some of these guys some money, but there were a whole lot of people who never got paid again. They only made right. the little bit they made filming it at the time. And over and over again, and the reason why I bring up Star Trek is because it literally exists in the 60s business model. It exists in the 70s business model. 80s, 90s, every decade since the 60s, it, there's been an incarnation of Star Star Trek. So what I'm saying is, if you study that thing, you can study the film right. and television industry uh, all right, right? It's interesting okay. to bring up Star Trek because I'm a Star Trek fan. Right. And it's just, when I've been on groups where we talk about Star Trek, we talked about, you know, Leonard Nimoy holding out. And he wouldn't do the first Star Trek motion picture. Right. Uh, he got, uh, you know, monies for his likeness. Because he was, he, he, there were his his picture, his likeness was used in ads and various other kinds of promotion and advertising and a promotion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was pretty much, and he was advised, you know, you should get your cut of this. And so when they were uh, having uh, doing the production of Star Trek motion picture, the Star Wars did so well. Mm-hmm. And originally, Star Trek was supposed to be a, another TV show. That's a whole other story, but. Yeah, it was uh, going to be Star a, Trek. Uh, yeah, I, I know this stuff, too. Star Trek Phase 2, and then they got rid of it, and they brought right. some of those story elements in because of the success of Star Wars. They decided, let's right. take a shot with Star Trek. But what's funny about this is you're bringing up Nimoy. Nimoy was, was being made into toys. He was an action figure. He was on T-shirts. He was on, you know, Frisbees, you name it. Uh, and he was getting nothing. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, he had to hold yeah. out for the uh, to do the first until he got – he got his monies and he got, you know, he got monies coming in mm-hmm. uh, because of these likenesses and because of all of these other ancillary licensed products. So what's important, I think it's, I'm glad you brought up the Star Trek because that's a very good example. And even Gene Ronberry was upset for a number of years. I know he felt like he was screwed over by Paramount for years. Right. Uh, probably why there wasn't a star, another Star Trek series until about 
the late 80s. Yep. Um, but, you know, when we talk about the strike, we talk about what's going on. Your point about it being a predatory business, Hollywood, the music industry, we know that's a predatory business. But Hollywood, to an extent, does have a great deal of uh, – it is about extracting the maximum profit and giving the minimum amount of wages, if not fees and wages, mm-hmm. to people. It doesn't want actors and directors and producers sharing in as much of the profit um, and, and as, and as much of the profit and under revenues as possible. So they will do creative accounting, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And they'll demonstrate that a hit movie is really a flop. They turn and through the met, through the wonders of accounting, Hollywood turns hits into into uh, flops because mm-hmm. it said, "No, we can make money off of it." Uh, oh, uh, Star Wars? Nah, that's really a flop. E.T.? Nah, that's really a flop. Jaws, before that, uh, barely made money. <laughs> barely made money. Great. They'll do that with, with any movie. They'll do that with any movie. And, of course, when they have an outright flop, they would say, yeah, it make money. Of course, it, it made money. Waterworld, for example, was $100 million, right? The Kevin Costner movie from the 1990s. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that the Universal or whatever studio was involved in that will say, well, some of those people will, will have said at the time, I don't think we're going to, I don't think it's going to pan out too well. Uh, and somebody wants their profit participation, meaning if they want to try to get gross points, mm-hmm. if you're a star or an actor and you want gross points, you're probably going to be denied that because they're going to say, nah, we didn't really make that much money off of it. Even though Modern World probably made back its, at least its investment. Uh, at least its budget, and maybe a little bit more. wasn't gigantic, but at least made its money back. So they do these kind of games, and that's why I cited residuals. That's how people survive. That's how actors survive. That's how writers survive. Mm-hmm. They would survive on residuals. In a place like L.A., I've lived in L.A. twice, right? It's not a cheap town. But here's the interesting thing about L.A., uh, and I'll take it from the standpoint of writers, because I've been a, a freelance writer and journalist. For 22 years, I was that in L.A. when I lived there twice. When I lived there in the 90s, mm-hmm. people used to say, when they found out I was a writer, they would say, why aren't you writing scripts? You know what? You need to be writing scripts. You need to be writing TV. You need to be writing movies. These were not people in the industry. These were not people in TV or film. These were average, everyday people wondering why I was not crazy enough, why I was crazy and not writing scripts. Mm-hmm. And that's why I used to get bothered about that. And about when I look at what's happened with TV writers these days, I go, and the struggles they're going through, the lack of the writers' rooms, the, the, the limiting in terms of their, their money, what they're paid nowadays. It used to be in the 90s. If I had actually wrote scripts and got scripts sold, because of the shift in the network, and this has impacted actors also well. So what you're seeing is the networks had, like, say, or, you know, networks would have a 22-episode order. But now you're, you're seeing with some of these cable shows and some of these streamers especially are smaller orders. Yes. So you're not getting 22 episodes. You're maybe 12 at best. Yeah, you're getting 10, 10. A lot of 10-episode runs, yes. Right. So smaller runs. And also with the streamers, they can just take these series off the air. 
So that means there won't be quote unquote repeats like there were with the networks. The networks would repeat shows. Mm-hmm. That's how you got your residual money. But you may not get that with streaming, again, as you mentioned in your own case as a podcaster. Proprietary information, you're not getting the kind of data you would need or knowledge of the data you would need in order to know how you're going to make money. Right. And so you see that kind of, that's ultimately part and parcel what both those guilds are are striking for, the writers and the actors, but primarily the actors, because it's always hard for actors. Actors have to make they have to survive. They have to get jobs. Every actor I knew when I was acting had a job. Mm-hmm. And I was not sitting in L.A. at the time. I never acted in L.A. I never acted in New York. But every actor I knew had a job. And so it's a hard, for the vast majority of actors, it's tough. It's not easy. They're not, most of them are not Hollywood stars. They're just struggling to be middle class and some working class. See, I would say that without the direct knowledge, without the ability to get behind the proprietary wall, to be able to see behind the curtain, to know what it is, your impact is as an artist, whether you're a writer or you're an actor, you have no clue if, you know, a hundred million people have seen your work or, you know, ten people have. You have no idea. You are relying on the very same people who have an interest in controlling, limiting your ability to have access to that data their best interest is for you not to know and they're keeping it that way and I'm telling you they're doing that all across the board so this is the thing they've got to break because you know and that's why they're on strike you think it's just going to be in the film and TV industry you're fooling yourselves folks it's coming to an industry near you not just AI but the, you, you see it in other industries. You see strikes. Uh, what was it? UPS, there just was a uh, possible strike averted in regards to UPS. Had they got on strike, it would have been 300,000 workers impacted. Mm-hmm. But they imagine avert that. Right, but, but, th- but this is the difficulty. Whether you, want to like, whether you guys want to face it or not. Yeah. Not just AI, the, uh, the, intelli- the AI aspect of it, but the, the technological impact. But financially, right. yeah. Well, but that's the problem because as an actor, as a writer, right? How is it that you gain your, your, your strength to be monetized, to be hired at a higher rate next time because you were successful previously, right? So what happens is if you were somebody who gained some success, but that's been hidden from you. Okay, then you have no way of being able to upgrade what it is you can ask for, right? If I'm a writer and I've generated, you know, I, I've written some stuff that, you know, uh, that that a, a million people have seen. That's very nice. That's very good. That puts me at a certain price level. Okay, as far as you want to hire me, a million people will watch what I what I make. Now, if I'm at another level. Okay, and a hundred million people want to see the things I create because whatever reason. Okay, now if there's virtually no difference between 
you know, me at the million people want to see it and me at the hundred million people want to see it level because that stuff is hidden behind a proprietary wall, then that is the unfair advantage. And nobody's mentioning this in any of these stories. Nobody's talking about that. And I'm telling you that the only reason why I have a thought about it is because I have difficulty showing people more than a few thousand listeners. Okay. I can't demonstrate it because they have unfairly not allowed independent creators to see things like the, the YouTube, uh, uh, you know, uh, domination. Nobody mm-hmm. is getting fair numbers on YouTube. Now you brought up some of these pop culture channels and stuff like that. Some of them have been allowed to thrive and not the political ones. I'm talking about the ones that are out there purely for pop culture's mm-hmm. sake. Your, uh, your what cultures, your loopers, uh, you know, they, they were sort of magazines and now they've morphed into these online content creators with, you know, the five minute videos and the lists and all that. All that stuff is generating advertising dollars. And I guarantee you that they are not being shown the real numbers. Even the people that are making a living are not being shown the real numbers. And I've talked about number manipulation. I've been kicked off of YouTube, by the way, but, uh, you know, as many other people have. And, and I don't have my poor view of, uh, uh, of Indiana Jones because of a political reason. It sounds like a bad story to me. Uh, so that's why I don't like it. It's not for politics sake, but you're right. The politics have seeped into this, have become uh, an influencer on it all, whether it's on social media or it's through direct content creation and no content creator of any kind except the upper echelon that actually control the platforms, okay, actually have knowledge of how many people are really uh, coming in. You know, uh, you, you're talking about the subscriber base, and yeah, they can say, well, we have a subscriber base of this or that or whatever, but a lot of that has advertising product placement built into it those things i guarantee are getting cooked in the numbers as far as showing people the reality of what comes from that and the actual audience because it's not all just based on the subscribers and downloads there's more to it and the thing is i can't tell you because i haven't seen the numbers how big and bad it is is paramount really losing money i don't know because they've hidden exactly how many people are really participating, how many people are being impacted, what is the result, how many Taco Bell commercials did they sell? Because they have the you know the ad free one, and then they have the ones with ads on it. Almost every uh, one of these streamers has that, right? Uh, so there's all sorts of elements coming together, and a whole bunch of it is hidden behind a wall, where only. The controllers of the platforms themselves know for real uh, how many people are accessing their stuff, what's actually going on, and it seems to me like it, it is to extract maximum profit from the creative people without giving them a share. I'm not even talking about, you know, like, uh, well, they deserve to be paid equally, you know, but without even giving them a share of it. It's it's much like how sports I- evolved also, right? At one time, I mean, you know, uh, the guys who uh, played for professional sports teams would go get summer jobs when they were winter sport and winter yeah. jobs when they were summer sport because there was no pay sharing there. You had to work. You had to work. Your NFL, NFL players, when they weren't playing during the season, after the season, they went and got jobs or had jobs already. That's NFL, how it was. Yeah, NFL, NFL NBA, everybody. Basically had to pay more money. Everybody. They had to pay more money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing. Until the unions pushed and pushed and pushed and made them, right, share. 
Because up to that point, they were saying, ah, it's costing us a lot of money. You know, it costs a lot of money to maintain a stadium. It costs a lot of money to, and, you know, TV revenue and everything else that comes into the equation. Every inch of the way, there has always been a fight between the owners of the franchise, okay, whatever that might be, and the performers and all the people that go into making the performance happen. Whether it's, you know, again, the guys cutting the grass at the stadium or the people selling hot dogs or it's the uh, or the players on the field when it comes to sports, whether it's the guy writing on the TV show, performing on the TV show, the background actors, the guys who are actually mixing the audio, it doesn't matter. There's always the us and them, and the us is, for the majority of the people involved, on one side, it's the creatives and the people that actually do work to put these things in, and the executive controllers of the platform. And this is what the battle is about. And it just seems to me that that's it's it's an ongoing thing. It's it's like the forever problem. There's always going to be expansion, uh, technologies, more reach, more ways to uh, you know monetize the overall product, the end result. And then the battle ensues of how is it that the people that actually put in the work to make it happen get a share of that? It's it's a constant battle, right? I mean that's the way I see it. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? I agree. And when you talked about YouTube, I've had a couple of channels on YouTube for over a year. Mm-hmm. And I've been around YouTube for a couple of years in general. Um, and I've heard that. Oh, I've, I've heard the belly aching about YouTube. Basically, Google and Alphabet that mm-hmm. run YouTube. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're making billions of dollars. Google and Alphabet are making billions of dollars off of YouTube. They're making billions of dollars. Right. No, it's just not a Johnny Carson parody of, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> of uh, the former host of Cosmos. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's, they're making billions of dollars off of YouTube. So, and they don't want, and they're going, and they favor certain channels. Right. That's another thing I've heard about YouTube. Um, this is sort of getting off geek. But your point about the control of proprietary it, it it's become your point is that it's become proprietary data at risk here as right. as as a foundation for residuals for fees for payments that's troubling because if you don't get access to that basically corporate controlled data you won't be able to get a few uh, a clear financial picture right i think that's that's a big factor in terms of residuals for actors uh, for members of SAG-AFTRA, huge factor in regards to streaming, but it's also a factor um, in regards to what you mentioned on YouTube and what you mentioned elsewhere. Um, that's the problem in this digital era and in this digital age is this control. When I look at my own career as a freelance writer and as a journalist, I never had to deal with residuals. So all I was able to do was to be able to negotiate in a very clear way, right? Mm-hmm. To get something, you know, to be able to get an amount that would work for me. Um, and I look at my career, I look at what I was able to do, but I also look at the changes. I have to admit, one reason why, wasn't the reason, but a minor reason why I retired was I knew about AI over six years ago. I knew that there were artificial intelligence 
programs that could write, if not articles, then at least portions of articles. I knew that this was going to change things. This was several years ago. Now people are talking about AI largely as a result of the strike. Right. Well, you know, it's about... Do I want to... Did I want to... I got to be honest. I didn't want to compete with the large language model. I absolutely. didn't want to compete with ChatGPT. Look, absolutely true. And here, we're about 10 minutes after the hour, so I want to get to the yeah. ultimate question here. And it is a personal one, okay? Because here's the thing. It goes right to the core of it. You as a writer at the time, right, when you would go to negotiate as a freelance writer, you agree to a price, you agree to a scale. Uh, you could base it on something, okay? This was the fairness that was there. And why do I say that? Because a publication... Uh, whether it's a magazine or a newspaper, forget about the online things that have happened now, okay? Just put it aside if it's a solid, hard copy thing. They did not have a benefit, you know, attached to claiming that there weren't that many readers. They didn't have a benefit attached to that because that could endanger their advertising dollar, which was absolutely the key and the cornerstone of their existence, right? Good point. Very good point. So yeah. because yeah, I of... Never, I never had any editor or publisher say to me, oh, we can't pay you what what you ask for because we don't have enough readers. No, so they, they don't. Never they would never cop to that because nobody wants an advertiser to hear that and say, hey, why should I pay you so much if you don't have so many readers? So it was not beneficial to hide that. Nowadays... Okay, because there is a diverse way, it's not so narrow as, look, my advertisers, I'm going to tell them we got 50 million people, so you know we got 50 million people, okay, that are, you know, buying this magazine. So you know from the sales and the ads that it's got to be something like around here, so you know that, uh, you know, Vanity Fair can pay you X amount of dollars because they're making money. They're, they're, they're a higher-end, uh, you know, distribution, right? You know that going right out, right off the bat. The Bay City, you know, Gazette, maybe they'll pay you, but they can't pay you as much because they're only in two towns. Okay, whatever. The, you know where it's at. You know who you're dealing with. They they had to bring forth their distribution numbers because it was part of their business model. Now, right. because of the diverse ways in which revenue goes into these companies and because of the fact that they don't necessarily have to, they can give the illusion of being large without saying that, you know, look, uh, actually, we don't have a lot of subscribers. Actually, we don't have a lot of, you know, blah, 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 whatever. We don't have a lot of sales going out. They have a a clear and present advantage in not being absolutely transparent about their distribution. So, therefore, there is the inherent problem and there is the the issue by which not only is somebody's price range as far as, look, I'm going to go contract with, say, say I got an acting job with Paramount or or one of these other companies. I was up for a role for, what do you call it, the blacklist. I I tried to get a role on the blacklist, right? But I know that the blacklist makes a decent amount of money. If they're coming to me telling me they're going to pay me $100, a day and I'm going to speak on screen? No way. Okay, you're, you're out of your minds. But, you know, here's the thing. 
it, they have an advantage here. If they don't show any of that, if they can distort it enough so that you don't know for certain what's happening, not only does it affect my ability to negotiate with them up front, but in the future, as I go forward and I'm trying to build a series of residuals so that, because that's how a, a real working actor makes their living. They have a series of residual payments. So while they're doing one job, they're still getting paid for jobs they did last year, the year before, et cetera. Right. Build it cumulatively so that during the course of a year, you make a living, okay? So maybe you work on a project for a year, but you're still getting paid for five, six other things you did. Okay, great. But they're endangering all that because you can't build that. You can't say, hey, look, a million and a half people saw me on this. Uh, 500 million people saw me on this. And I was a key reason. I was a big deal. You have no way to show that, to quantitize that. And therefore have a negotiating point for your next job. So they're not just taking away their ability to directly negotiate. Like for you, for instance, you would go to a new magazine. You'd say, okay, I know you're this size magazine. I can deal with it this way. You're probably able to pay me, you know, $500 for this article. Uh, you know, so many words, so much space, et cetera. Maybe another magazine, they're only able to pay you 50 bucks because you know they've got, you know, a thousand readers. All right. Whatever it is, you can't even do that, and you can't build off of it. So the next time you go and you say, listen, I've been in this massive publication. I know a whole lot of people have read me before. I'm not just a brand-new guy who might you know, have people not even care to read my article. They're going to be engaged. I know that because I've done it before. You can't even show that now uh, as an actor, as a writer, uh, for, for television, for film. You now have this problem because so much of the information is hidden and just kept in control yep. of the people that are actually in control of the money at the top, right? I, it, it, yeah, and that's, that's a huge – and that's why they're striking right. ultimately. There's why this, that's why SAG after striking. That's why the Writers Guild striking. That's why they have to strike. Mm-hmm. They have the, as they call it, existential issues with technology, but they also have those financial issues, and those are two joined together. The increase and the development of streaming and the increase in streamers has led to a reduction in residual payments. Yeah, because of the structure, as you mentioned. The not the non-sharing of data, proprietary nature of data and financial figures to a certain extent. What you get are generic. You'll get some financial figures, but not a whole bunch. So they're not able to negotiate the way. And you used example. They use me as an example. I would say in my case, as a freelancer, what I was able, what you understand as a freelancer is when you write for publications, Mm -hmm. you understand right off the bat that a small weekly isn't going to have the advertising base because that's fundamentally what it's based on. It's not going to have the advertising base to pay you a lot of money. Right. In other words, I understand if I'm going to get $100 writing for this weekly, it's going to be based on the fact that they don't have a large advertising base. The right. more advertising monies they have, the more publications can afford to pay you. It's just the way it is. Right. You know, Vogue can afford to pay its writers several thousand dollars per article. Why? Because they get millions of dollars in advertising. Or I've known a couple of people who wrote for Playboy, and they paid very well and paid expenses, okay? And they could afford to do it. 
Okay. Uh, because, yeah, real because article. Playboy, again, you have to look at the advertising dollars. Right. Is that, is Playboy, even now, I don't know what Playboy's like now. Are they getting millions of dollars in advertising? Yeah, they would. That's what the magazines would have to get right. in order to justify paying you, let's just say they pay five grand per, you know, a feature article or even 10 grand a feature article. They can't pay that if their advertising base is $100,000 a year. Right. Right. If they're $100,000, they're not going to be able to pay you even $1,000 more than likely. Right. And they're so, also not going to turn around and give you. Publications. As a freelancer, yeah. and understand, were... oh, it's based on advertising. But even as even a. Even if you don't know the figures. Exactly. Even if you don't know the figures, you understand that. Go ahead. Well, even as a freelancer, right, they might turn around and say, okay, you know, you call them up and say, I got a little more follow up I got to do on this article. They might be willing to send you plane tickets or you know, <laughs> things like this yeah. if they're a large enough publication. Uh, look, I got to go and I got to meet this guy who is a source for this article. Okay, cool. We're going to fly you there. But if it's a, one of these small weeklies, they can't do that. They don't have it. So, But that's the thing is that everybody's crying poverty as far as we don't have the money to share with you know these actors, these writers, etc. And it is to their advantage to keep it that way. Uh, these old publications back then, they wanted to show their subscriber base. They wanted to show their advertiser base because, guess what? Their future earnings would grow based on that. See, that's the weird thing now is that their future earnings would grow based on that, and it's not that way with this streaming stuff. It is a different era. It's a different time. It's a different model. So anyway, I've kept you over an hour. I'm sorry. I kept you yeah. over an hour, and we're at almost an hour and 20, and I didn't even right. go to the other journalist question, but I want to give you a chance to sort of tie a bow on this whole thing and uh, and, and get it done if you want, because, uh, again, veteran journalist Albert Lanier has been going through the uh, the SAG-AFTRA, SAG-slash-AFTRA, uh, you know, strike, which is going on, uh, and, of course, the writer strike, we're touching upon it, and the general concept and the problem with the modern-day streaming business, entertainment business, all of this has been discussed for the past hour and 20 now. Uh, so, and, and this has been done, again, uh, with, through through a lens, somebody who has an understanding of it, who is an analyst of this type of media, who is a veteran journalist. And uh, look, it's more than just my opinion. I know I interjected here a bit, but I mean, let, let's be honest. This is a real thing. And uh, Mr. Lanier made the statement that you need to keep in your mind. This is not just a, a, a you know, imagination and the imagination factory problem out in Hollywood, Hollyweird, whatever. This is not just an entertainment business problem because I'm telling you right now, due to the fact that we have the, the virtual world and these interesting businesses where the actual base of revenue is totally disconnected, it's not meant to be put out there transparently, this kind of problem is going to come to many types of businesses and many types of workers are going to be made super superfluous or irrelevant, etc. not just because chat GPT or whatever might replace them, not just because another AI or some other, you know, automation might replace them, but in addition, because of this proprietary information problem. So it is coming to a business near you, no matter what business you're running, you might be encountering the same problem these people are. Just saying. Anyway, Mr. Lanier, I'll give you a chance to close it out any which way you want. We'll give you links right. to uh, Albert Lanier's work, of course. And uh, I thank you for taking this time and going through this with me. 
Yeah, it was an interesting conversation. I like some of the threads that you brought in, especially your thread as a podcaster in terms of the data. That's very important. I think that was a good comparison, or at least a decent comparison there. Um, I I would, if you want to, if you feel very strongly about this, you're in Georgia. Mm-hmm. I know that Chuck's in Georgia. That's a hub. Georgia is being impacted by the strike. So the people listening there. You also place it like Louisiana. That's another hub of production impacted by the strike. This doesn't just impact California. It impacts other parts of the country. Georgia, um, Louisiana, New Mexico. A lot of, lot of, of television, a lot of television and movie production in Georgia, more than a lot of people realize. It's not just the Walking oh, yeah. Dead universe, but uh, a whole lot of stuff, not just AMC, not just Turner Network, not just Cartoon Network, although those are all in play here. Uh, there is a lot of actually entertainment being generated, which has been shut down, and now a lot of other jobs which are connected to that, all gone. Plus, Canada, don't forget, is affected by this directly. That's There's a lot of Vancouver. Yep, yeah, a lot of Wait, Canadian. Yeah. So, you know, coast to coast in this country, a lot of people's jobs are getting affected by this right now. And uh, as you said, you know, it's going to go to more than one business. So go ahead. Sorry. So uh, I if you want to if those of you out there want to actually help support people uh, during the strike, uh, you might want to go to I think it's Entertainment Community Fund. I think it's entertainmentcommunity.org. That's entertainmentcommunity.org if you want to financially support or help. Uh, that's the Entertainment Community Fund, entertainmentcommunity.org. Uh, if you want to help out, you want to help the actors and, I think, writers as well. Um, as for me, um, please uh, visit, subscribe, especially to my YouTube channel, which is Writer Albert Lanier. I believe that's Writer Albert Lanier 3434, uh, Writer Albert Lanier. Uh, that's my official YouTube channel, my official channel on YouTube, writer Albert Lanier. Um, also, you want to contact me on Twitter, I'm at Critic Inc., at Critic Inc. on Twitter. I'm on Facebook as well. Um, and I think that's about it. I, you know, I don't have any, you know, major projects or anything that I'm working on because uh, basically because I've been retired from freelancing for six years now. Uh, but I'm considering coming out of retirement. It really depends on, uh, you know, any offers come my way. So, if no, you're I, interested. Uh, yeah, no, look, <laughs> I hear you. And, uh, MediaWriter1 at uh, Yahoo.com. That's MediaWriter, the number one, at Yahoo.com, uh, an email account of mine. Media writer, media writer, the number one at yahoo.com. That's your email address. If somebody's interested in hiring Mr. Lindian for a writing project, he will field the offer. There you go. Uh, and more than happy, and I'll give you guys links. I also dropped a link, uh, to the Entertainment Fund website. Uh, Entertainment, I, uh, I dropped it in the Ocelli chat room. We do have a live chat room over there. You can always roll it back if you're hearing the show later. No problem. And I'll include it with the show notes along with links to Mr. Lindian's work. Work. But uh, again, I thank you for doing this, and um, I think it's a very right. interesting thing that's right. emerging and is going to touch a lot of things in the world. So, yeah. All right, thank you so much for having me. Anyway, guys, keep listening to Ocelli.com Radio as we're figuring out how to monetize what it is we do, and having that proprietary problem. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, uh, no matter who you are, where you are, remember this. I am merely Ocelli. All of you are indeed the effect tonight. 
theochelli.com radio network. Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com. Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com. Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com. Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. And now, some wise words from Harland. And that's something else from the right. Why has everything got to be based on, you know, our race card is better than the Democrats' life. Right, right. You know, our, you know, LGBTQ, but we can't, you know, we can't allow the trans, you know, right now, but... You know, let's don't say anything about Caitlyn Jenner if I were over here bitching about some fucking sissy on a beer can. I mean, <laughs> I mean, when does it fucking end? You know, motherfuckers over here are raising hell about them putting a sissy on the beer can, and three quarters of them is, is suck more dick than most women. I ain't thinking about sucking on a gun barrel like a dick or nothing. Now, this is 2023, folks. If you want to suck on a dick, good for you. You know what I mean? It just ain't my cup of tea. You're listening to the Ocelli.com radio network. Go ahead, caller. Hey, I'm interested in the truth about the JFA assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim. Oswald girlfriend. She knew Ruby and Barry. Cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFA assassination built into her claims? Go to Amazon.com. Enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. The views expressed by callers, schools, or anyone else who happens to get on the air at Ocelli.com do not necessarily reflect the views of Ocelli.com or Chuck Ocelli. And we are not responsible for any stupidity which might ensue. Thank you. The War State by Michael Swanson explains the great national transformation that took place and put the Kennedy presidency in the context of the times and reveals never-before-published information about the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy would not have been assassinated if he had been president 200 years ago. His assassination took place in the context of the Cold War and the rise of the national security state. Before World War II, the United States was a continental republic. In the decade that followed, it became an imperial superpower. Generals such as Curtis LeMay not only wanted to invade Cuba, but knew that there were short-range missiles on the island armed with nuclear warheads that they could not destroy because they were on mobile launchers. Their invasion could have led to a third world war, and they wanted to go to war anyway. The War State by Michael Swanson reveals why and will show you what President Kennedy was up against. For more information, thewarstate.com. 
Hey, look, I actually have a little offer that I want to drop to everybody who's on here and anybody listening. If uh, if you don't mind, Mr. Cooper, I'd like to take a minute and make a little offer and uh, and ask of everybody watching, listening, and participating. No, not at all. Okay, look, I am uh, continuously building my little network, and I've got a 24-7 radio station, okay, online. It, it's got a bit of reach. It's been interesting. I've had it running steadily without interruption for, I don't know, five, seven years, something like that. But here's the thing. I would love to get, because some people are going to start paying to uh, run things on my radio station, um, but I don't. I'm not looking for money here today. Uh, I mean, you know, I'll take it if anybody's got something they want to give it up, but, uh, you know, because I could use it. But I'm not looking for that right this minute. My offer is simple. Uh, actually, if you have short audios that you would like because you have a presentation, a tight five, ten minutes worth of something uh, that you think is absolutely worthy of the world hearing, okay, because I have listeners all over the world to that radio station. They're not in huge numbers all at one time but they're constant, 24-7. Every country you could possibly think of tunes into my radio station at one point or another. It's not huge. It's not like, oh, I've got millions of listeners, but we do have thousands. And we have thousands of people that tune in and catch Get Mad with Chris Graves and catch the replays and catch my show, which is the Ocelli Effect, and they catch the replays and they catch Aaron Franz as the Age of Transitions. Pretty soon they're going to be catching a cult priestess on there. Nice. Anyway, and I, I've got offers to other people to join us, you know, working on it. But here's the thing. I don't care if you're a podcaster or if you're a musician or if you're just somebody who's got some great thoughts that you think the world needs to hear. Do me a favor, record them, make an MP3, and send them on over to me. I want to start populating the stream for the next little while with stuff that I'm not charging anybody to run. It's just good stuff. Send me your good stuff, okay? Blindjfkresearcher at gmail.com. Just email it to me, all right? Uh, you got music? Maybe you're a musician. Maybe you're a podcaster and you want to do an ad for your podcast because you want other people to listen. You haven't been a guest on my show. Maybe you have been a guest on my show. I don't care. Throw me together a couple of minutes. Tell me why people should listen to you. Tell me why people should pay attention to something else. Why should they pay attention to what's going on in Congress? I don't care. Send it over to me, okay? I want to populate this with anybody who's got good ideas, okay, and is outside of the mainstream for the next little while. We'll still run our replays. We'll still run our regular shows, okay? But I want to see what happens if I open it to everybody. I'm not asking you to pay for ads. And again, you could do an ad for your podcast. You could do an ad for your Rockfin channel. You can, I, I don't care. Send me something that is of interest, that moves information forward, that helps to educate people, whether it's your project, your song, your poem, your article. You want, you're, you're a writer. You like to write. Read me your article. Send it to me. Okay, do any of this and send it to blindjfkresearcher at gmail.com. If you can't remember that, go to ocelli.com, click on the email thing there. It might go to that email address. It might go to info at ocelli.com. I control both of those. So it doesn't matter. Email it to me. I will play it. Okay, not going to say I'm going to play it a million times. 
if you want to make an arrangement to play a commercial with me, I do have open ad space, but, and I'm looking not to charge people a lot of money. If you're doing a small project, we can customize it, all that stuff, and we need support for the network, sure. But I'm not looking for money today. I'm looking for your ideas. I'm looking for your voices. You want to be heard somewhere. You think you're not being heard in enough places. Send it over to me. Send me a short piece of audio. Okay, don't send me videos. I can't play videos on my stream. It's a 24-7 audio radio station, okay? And I'll be more than happy to add you to the mix. Uh, I'm suspending. I usually don't like to have harsh language on my station. We're not going to bother with that because I'm no longer carried on AM and FM. Fuck it. We're going, okay? Bring it Fuck to me. Yes, you got. And show me your good ideas. Show me your good podcast. Anybody on here, you guys all have some sort of podcast you do. Send me an ad for your podcast. Fine. You got good ideas, obviously, you think, because that's what you're making. Send me good ideas. Send me the good material. Send me the good places to point people to. You've written an article you're proud of. Read it. Send it to me. You wrote a song. You think it's great. You're not going to hit me for using it for copyright. Actually, I've got a license to play copyright and stuff on my online radio station. Send me your music. No problem. Original things that move ideas and reality forward, that inform people, that educate them, that do some kind of good. Send me your audio. I can't offer it any more open than that. Do you like history, real history, that you were never taught in schools? Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs, and nation building in Southeast Asia. By author Mike Swanson, with new documentation never seen before. That'll open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs, and nation building in Southeast Asia. 1945 through 1961. Get your copy today at Amazon. Dot com. Why? The Vietnam War. By author Mike Swanson. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. By Larry Hancock. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. Ocelli and the Greek Rated Y is available here at Ocelli.com on Ocelli.com radio. But guess what? It's by subscription only. And the rumors of us phasing it out are, guess what? Exaggerated, unfounded, not true. How you doing, Greek? Hey, I'm doing, yeah. We're, we're here to stay for the moment, for the week, for the month, and uh, as far as we could see. Uh, we did a collab on American Freedom Radio a while back. And when you're doing it with something, another venue like that, you know, you have some control. You, you don't and other things uh but here we have full control so as far as i can see uh foreseeable future we're, we'll be uh pumping these out as as uh, as needed there you go and look it is a subscription only thing and you have to subscribe to it specifically you don't get it along with any other package from any other place nothing it's only
only at Ocelli.com, and you got to click the button there that says Ocelli and the Greek rated Y. And each month you pay for it, but there's already 40, okay, 40 Sonic events in the archive on the page that you'll have immediate access to, plus what comes out as we make them. Uh, yeah, I think people will get more than they thought out of these, um, even though they might seem casual. But I'll tell you what, you can't put music to them. You can't. Real hard. You can't yeah. put music to them, and I'll tell you one other thing. You will not hear conversations like this anywhere else, I promise you that, because the information that the Greek brings to the table, as you would well know if you've heard us before, if you've heard the Greek elsewhere, you know that's unique. And when paired with me, well, you know, some people like it, some people love it, some people, whatever, I don't really care. It is different, it is informative, and it is real. Ocelli and the Greek, rated Y. Subscribe at Ocelli.com. would dare to understand the sonic entity known as Ocelli and the Greek. Revelation to Conversation Ocelli.com Going to Chuck Ocelli 